Yet despite their different experiences of freedom, both men and women protested the terms of emancipation. They sometimes did so in different ways, reflecting their varied experiences of emancipation. This paper will highlight the role of women in these movements while also devoting some attention to men. It will also discuss the gendered nature of freedom more generally. So let me turn to apprenticeship. Although the enslaved were declared legally free on the 1st of August, 1834, they were obliged to serve a period of apprenticeship to their former masters. This meant that ex-slaves were legally obligated to work without compensation for their former masters for up to 45 hours per week. Their term of continued compulsory labor depended upon their status. Former field slaves, who were known as pradials, were to be apprenticed for six years, while skilled apprentices and domestics, who were known as non-pradials, were to be fully free after four years. Beyond the time required by law for the apprentices to serve their former masters, ex-slaves were free to negotiate conditions of work and wages with their former masters or with another employer. Moreover, the legislation establishing apprenticeship sought to protect the apprentices by prohibiting former masters from punishing their former slaves. Instead, special magistrates were appointed, largely from England, to adjudicate disputes between masters and their former slaves. <clears throat> One of the provisions of the apprenticeship legislation was to allow for the compulsory manumission of the apprentices. Apprentices therefore had the right to purchase the remaining time of the apprenticeship period even against the will or without the consent of the owner. However, the method of appraising the value of the apprentice's labor favored the former owners. Tribunals consisted of a stipendary magistrate, but also two colonial justices, local people who may well have had an interest in apprentice labor themselves. Despite this obstacle, many apprentices were able to buy themselves out of apprenticeship, and importantly, the overwhelming majority of them were women. So let me show you table one, which I hope you can see. So in this table, uh, you see this refers to 1837 in Barbados and apprentices who were manumitted. And you see in the bottom total over here, the total 12, almost 1,200 is quite significant uh, given the size of Barbados. And you see that, uh, looking at the bottom totals, clearly more females than males were manumitted. Uh, more non-pradials, non-pradials, remember, were skilled uh, or domestics as opposed to pradial or field slaves. So more skilled and domestics, more female than male. And of course, many of the females would have been indeed uh, domestics. Uh, also, it's interesting to look at the, where is this? To look up here, you see a town, this is probably Bridgetown, capital, and you see the very large number of non-pradials here, of this total, and the large number, again, of females. Uh, and going across at the bottom here, so down here, if you look under these categories, appraisement, agreement, what do these mean? Well, the method of their manumission. So uh, the category um, by appraisement was the category, was the official route, which is an agreement by the magistrates. By agreement meant that the uh, apprentice and the master agreed a price. And voluntary meant that the master actually uh, let go the apprentice voluntarily and without payment. 
So a significant uh, gender breakdown and a significant number who were manumitted a year before, it turns out, the end of full freedom. So where possible then, many women sought to be fully free. Many apprentices who were women sought to be fully free. These women often stopped working as field laborers or, uh, it, um, or doing what they had done uh, as apprentices, preferring instead to do, to do domestic work or trade as hucksters. Moreover, women also protested against the apprenticeship generally. The authorities complete, co complained about women apprentices. For example, the governor of Jamaica, Governor Sligo, wrote, wrote home, quote, it is notorious that the women are all over the island the most troublesome. Nor did their activities cease in 1834. There are repeated cases of trouble among women apprentices during the entire period of apprenticeship. More than a year after the system had been established, one of the special magistrates in British Guyana, A.M. Lyons, reported on what he called the insubordination of women apprentices. According to Lyons, on a particular plantation called Kitty, quote, about 25 women, apprentice laborers, conducted themselves in a most unruly manner in attempting to rescue four men convicted by me of conspiring not to perform their work and sentenced to be punished by whipping. Asked whether this was part of a conspiracy or a combination, the stipendiary magistrate reported that on this plantation, the women have attempted to set all authority at defiance. The whole have contributed together not to perform their work. Later in the same year, there were complaints elsewhere in British Guyana about idle and disorderly apprentices, most of whom, again, were women. <clears throat> in early 1836, Special Magistrate Lyon again reported on the behavior of women on two plantations. On one, the women were very rude to those in authority, and on the second, some of the pregnant women pretended to be ill and would do no work. In another case, the whole women's gang refused to work, quote, in consequence of some women having been required to go to their work after having been discharged by the medical attendant. Similar cases were also reported in Jamaica. So those of you, I'm sure everybody here knows where Jamaica is, but here we are here. And Guy and I could have shown you down here off the map. So two observers who were sent to Jamaica by the Society of Friends, by the Quakers, to assess the apprenticeship, John Sturge and Thomas Harvey, reported on a series of abuses of women apprentices. In one incident on an estate near Falmouth in the north coast, police were called to quell a disturbance among nursing mothers. The women had refused to come to work before breakfast, quote, as they said, as it was very wet and they were obliged to carry their children into the fields with them. Brought before the special magistrate, the apprentices were sentenced to work six extra Saturdays. They explained the difficulties this would cause as the women devoted Saturdays to tending their provision grounds, and without their Saturdays, quote, they had no means of obtaining, uh, they had no means of obtaining subsistence. For their contumacy, they were sent to the workhouse for three days and will still have to work, will still have to work the six Saturdays. As Mimi Scheller suggests, Sturge and Harvey use such cases to demonstrate how planters exploited apprentices generally and women in particular. The British visitors were particularly sympathetic to the plight of these female apprentices, in part because some of, the, some of their own support came from metropolitan middle-class women Many of, who, many of whom had been involved in anti-slavery campaigns. <clears throat> As Scheller concludes, quote, 
The incident demonstrates the women's concerted efforts to resist the plantation regime by stopping work, presenting justifications in terms of their need to protect and feed their children, and protesting their lack of subsistence and free time, both of which they had formerly depended on to support their families. There were good reasons then why women were so prominent in the resistance to apprenticeship. As Thomas Holt has pointed out, female, well, that's the doors, female apprentices formed the bulk of the field laboring force on the plantations, just as they had during slavery. Regulations about hours and about working practices would therefore have affected women more directly than men. When, when Golden Grove Estate in Jamaica, the eastern part of the island, employed workers on appropriate, in inappropriate shifts, for example, it was women who were the leaders in protesting about these arrangements. The special magistrate for the district reported that, quote, the women almost always protested against such mode of labor, the ringleader of whom I felt obliged to punish by sentence of one month's hard labor. In this particular case, the magistrate released the woman on the promise of good behavior by the other workers on the estate. However, the explanation for the role of women as ringleaders against apprenticeship is more complicated than simply numerical predominance. In her article, Scheller discusses women's role in Jamaica during this period as both workers and mothers. As Scheller suggests, unlike their male counterparts, female field laborers could make claims for improved working conditions not simply as free workers, but specifically as mothers who were struggling to support their families. The planter's withdrawal of privileges during apprenticeship, and specifically those affecting pregnant women, women with children, and the role of elderly matriarchs impinged directly on women. Female apprentices were punished in large numbers for trying to assert and protect the limited rights they had won as mothers of the slave labor force. In the end, the harsh treatment of women rebounded against the planters and helped to discredit the whole apprenticeship scheme and led to its premature abolition in 1838. <clears throat> Let me turn then to uh, part two, the post-emancipation riots and resistance. <clears throat> in the aftermath of emancipation, gender differences were significant. As I suggested, unlike women, men could become citizens. They could take part in politics. Uh, as Scheller has suggested, this was part of expressing what she calls their masculine citizenship. In the case of Jamaica, the franchise requirements remained relatively low until the late 1850s. Although the House of Assembly sought to raise the minimum requirements for the vote, the colonial office in London repeatedly disallowed legislation. The result was that some former enslaved men after 1838 had the vote and could, could significantly affect elections to the House of Assembly. This helps to explain the election of brown and black men to the Assembly in the aftermath of emancipation. Although women did not have the vote, this did not exclude them from expressing their views publicly and participating in riots and demonstrations during this period. One of the areas that women occupied spatially in the Caribbean was the street. They dominated the markets, and many also worked as domestics in towns and cities. As a result, women played an important part in the development of a politically active Afro-Jamaican public and filled the streets and squares 
during popular political mobilizations or demonstrations. One example of this was women's participation in the John Canoe Riots of 1840 and 1841 in Kingston. These riots developed in response to the mayor of Kingston attempting to suppress the Christmas celebrations centered on cultural practices carried over from slavery. When the police seized the people's drums and made arrests, men and women resisted. One description by a magistrate highlighted the particular role of women. Quote, I saw many stones thrown and glass bottles. They flew about me like hail. <clears throat> I saw women with stones tied up in their petticoats. They supplied the mob with them and threw them themselves. As Swithin Wilmot has noted, other observers describe the women as the most violent members of the crowd who threatened, quote, blood for blood and to lick down the police. There were similar descriptions of women's involvement in the Antigua riots of 1858. Oops, that's not good. So Antigua, of course, is over here in the Eastern Caribbean. <clears throat> These riots in Antigua grew out of confrontation between dock workers from Antigua and Barbuda. Antiguan dock workers regarded the Barbudans as their economic competitors, taking their jobs at a time of severe economic stagnation. Hundreds of Antiguans in the capital of the island, St. John's, it's the door, unfortunately. <clears throat> it's the part of the cuts that we're facing generally, I think. Anyway, hundreds of Antiguans in the capital of the island, St. John's, joined the riots. They attacked Portuguese Madeirans who had been imported to work in the sugar plantations after emancipation, as, as well as white planters and black and mixed-race policemen. Black women were very involved in these riots. As Natasha Lightfoot has observed, quote, women allegedly led angered crowds about the streets, brandished weapons, attacked their designated antagonists, and appeared in their comportment and dress, get this, to be like men. Antiguan women attacked Barbudan women and destroyed some of their homes because the Antiguans were concerned about the economic com competition of the Barbudans in the markets and in jobs as domestics. Like the men, the women also threw stones in attacking the police station in an unsuccessful attempt to seize the arms stored at the station. For Lightfoot then, the women were not bystanders in these Antiguan riots, but essential to its spread. They also paid a heavy price for their, their participation in the riots. Women were among the eight people killed in the riots, and more than 50 women were arrested during them. Moreover, the description of women acting like men was not unique to Antigua. This symbolic masculinization of women was part of the gender discourse of slavery and the post-emancipation period. One of the concerns of both free men and free women after emancipation was the real possibility of re-enslavement. This was the motiv motivating force behind the Guerre Negra riots in Dominica in 1844 riots that grounded the authorities' decision to organize a census in that year. So here's Dominica down here. <clears throat> As Russell Chase has noted, almost every affidavit and piece of testimony taken after the protest points to the same conclusion, that the freed persons firmly believed that they were to be re-enslaved and that many of them were prepared to resist to the point of death. 
Initially, free people attacked the census enumerators, but then the protests spread to attacks on estate property and managers. Although the riots were dominated by men, women also abused the enumerators. As in the cities of Kingston and St. John's, women in the capital of the island, Roseau, were involved in the riots. Another significant issue for free men and women in the aftermath of emancipation was the problem of low wages and the often irregular payment of those wages. These concerns helped to explain the outbreak of the Belmana riots in 1876 in Tobago, which is just off Trinidad here. The riots occurred on Roxborough State, a plantation owned by a Barbadian who employed many Barbadian workers. Some of these workers were apparently involved in arson attacks on the estate. However, when the police arrived to arrest the alleged arsonists, a crowd, including many women, resisted the police. One of the policemen, Corporal Belmana, fired into the crowd, killing a Barbadian woman. Belmana was eventually set upon by the crowd and badly beaten. Although those arrested for Belmana's subsequent death were mostly men, one woman was also found guilty. Writing about these riots, the Belmana riots, Bridget Brereton has identified identified low wages as central to understanding these riots. For Brereton, quote, the complex of grievances that centered on wages, stoppages, and estate shops were the common sources of friction behind many post-emancipation disturbances in the Caribbean. These included the Belmana, Belmana riots where a type of debt peonage had been created among the workers. This was as a result of the truck system, in which many estates had their own shops, and planters arbitrarily deducted wages for debts contracted in those shops. For women, whose domestic responsibilities would have included being in charge of the household, these problems would have been severe. It helps to explain their active participation. The wages were also an important element in the riots which occurred in St. Croix in 1878. Plantation workers there regarded the labor law that had been established 30 years previously at the time of emancipation as a new form of servitude. When wages for the plantation workers fell below that stipulated in the labor ordinance and far below the wages paid at a new central factory opening in 1878, the workers rioted. Their first target was the, was the police in Frederickstead, capital, and then the homes of the most prominent inhabitants in the town. The riots then spread to the countryside. The damage to homes and plantations was extensive, and the loss of life very high. At least 84 blacks were killed and three whites. Immigrant workers were prominent among the leaders of the Fireburn, as it was known, one of whom was Mary Thomas from Antigua. Known as Queen Mary, she has been immortalized in song and legend in St. Croix for her participation in the riots. Let me turn then to the Morambe Rebellion. As in St. Croix, Tobago, and Antigua, many of the same issues were present at Morambe. So here we have Morambe, right there. This is St. Thomas in the East, today St. Thomas. Rebels at Morambe were angry about low wages and the possibility of re-enslavement. In addition, they they were bitter about the lopsided and partial judicial system and the lack of access to their provision grounds without paying rent. In the period leading up to the Morambe Rebellion and during the rebellion itself, men and women protested, often together, 
but sometimes separately. Men clearly dominated the meetings held just before the outbreak of the rebellion. In one of them, in St. Thomas in the East, one of the rebel leaders, James McLaren, protested about the level of wages and also about the impossibility of acting as a man and looking after his family. This is, uh, this is uh, what James McLaren was quoted as saying. Why cause me to hold this meeting? Myself was born free, but my mother and father was slave. But now I am still a slave by working from days to days. I cannot get money to feed my family, and I'm working at Coley Estate, an estate in St. Thomas and East, for 35 chains, what does not on there, and after five days working, I get two shillings and sixpence for my family. And the important line is, is for him, is that able to, to sustain a house full of family? The paper owned by George William Gordon, the Jamaica Watchman and People's Free Press, had a similar message and exhorted men to act as men. Quote, you are no longer slaves, but free men. Then as free men, act your part at the meeting. And here's a picture of Gordon. This, for Scheller, this was an example of Friedman's masculinity, appealed to as a personal and political identity that must be performed actively. At some of these meetings, McLaren and Paul Bogle, the leader of the rebellion, sought to recruit men to march into Moran Bay. And here's our image of Bogle. Men often took an oath at these meetings. Although the oath differed from place to place, one report maintained that the oath was, quote, to pay no taxes and to kill every bakra, white man, in Jamaica. Men were clearly drilled ahead of the confrontation at Moran Bay. Moreover, it was clear that McLaren and Bogle expected a violent confrontation between the authorities and the men they were organizing. When the police sought to arrest Bogle at Stony Gut, his, his village, the day before the rebellion began, they saw men acting like soldiers. The Stony Gut, the village, is just above, in the hills, Moran Bay, is just above uh, uh, Moran Bay. If you go there today, as, as I was there last week, um, you will see the remains, or you'll see stones where his chapel Actually, of course, the whole village was razed, destroyed after the rebellion. Anyway, when the police uh, sought to arrest him, they saw men acting like soldiers. Although the police had a warrant for Bogle's arrest, he refused to go and shouted for help. Immediately, upwards of 300 men, armed with cutlasses and sticks, appeared out of the nearby cane fields and out of the chapel in the village. They then handcuffed the police who reported witnessing three of his lieutenants, each drilling a separate gang of men. The men carried sticks, cutlasses, and lances and practiced marching in the village. Before being freed, the police learned that Bogle and his men would be coming to Moran Bay the following day. Before marching to Moran Bay, Bogle and his allies sent a petition to Governor Eyre, the governor of the day, Governor Eyre. In the petition, the rebel leaders complained about the injustice of the warrants issued against them and proclaimed their innocence. Moreover, they said, <clears throat> we therefore call upon your excellency for protection, seeing we are Her Majesty's loyal subjects, which protection, if refused to, will be compelled to put our shoulders to the wheel as we have been imposed upon for a period of 27 years with due obeisance 
to the laws of our queen and country, and we can no longer endure the same. This petition was clearly expressed in threatening language. Moreover, the rebels understood freedom in a particular way. They felt imposed upon, something they believed should not have been the experience of free men. When the largely male crowd marched into Moran Bay the following day, they were highly organized. The men marched four abreast with the women on their flanks. As one observer noted, they came in rows. They were well packed together, close behind each other, but not at all straggling. They advanced slowly and deliberately. Though dressed in ordinary laborers' clothes, they looked more like troops than in a regular mob. This was also the case after the burning of the courthouse in Moran Bay. Bogle and his men marched, again in military fashion, to the district police station to liberate the prisoners in the jail. Accompanying Bogle were three companies of ten men each, led by three captains under Bogle. Bogle, the men were then ordered to stand guard in various parts of the town. In the days after the outbreak at Moran Bay, Bogle was seen at various places, usually marching with his forces. Nearly a week after the outbreak, Bogle and several of his associates signed a document which was a call to war. It is time now for us to help ourselves. Skin for skin, the iron bars is now broken in this parish. White people send a proclamation to the government to make war against us. Blow your shells, roll your drums, house to house, take out every man, march them down to Stony Gut, any that you find in the way that takes them down with their arms. War is at us, my black skin. War is at hand from today to tomorrow. Bogle clearly envisioned a battle to be fought by black men against the whites. Moreover, the rebels sought in vain to get the backing of the Maroons, men whose skill in using guns and tracking their opponents would have been crucial to the success of the rebellion. But while men saw themselves as soldiers of the rebellion, they did not act alone. Women were also central to the uprising. Women's role in the rebellion was apparent on the march into Moran Bay. Women not only formed part of the crowd proceeding to Moran Bay, but they also encouraged the men along the route of the march. One observer heard women along the road crying, flog them, Johnstown, flog them, Johnstown, referring to marches from a settlement on the way to Moran Bay. At Moran Bay, the officials and the militia confronted a stone-throwing crowd in front of the courthouse. As the custis of the parish attempted to read the riot act, a, voluntary obs- a volunteer observed a woman he knew named Letitia Geohegan throwing the first stone, followed by a hail of stones <clears throat> from other women in the crowd. The members of the militia, as well as the parish officials, retreated into the courthouse, but eventually the crowd decided the best method of attack was to burn the building down and force the volunteers and vestrymen to come out. It is likely that women were responsible for this plan. One witness claimed that a woman named Rosanna Finlayson, quote, said they must go and get a fire stick and trash and set the schoolroom on fire. She said the white people were locked up in the courthouse, and if they set fire to the schoolroom, the whole people would be burnt up alive. Five minutes later, the the schoolhouse was on fire, It was adjacent to the courthouse, and it was not long before that building began to burn as well. 
<clears throat> Women were also instrumental in encouraging the men in the crowd to continue their attack on the courthouse. After the volunteers had fired at the crowd, some of the, some of the men had withdrawn. But the women on one of the roads leading into the town reportedly told the men, Now you men, this is not what you said in the mountain, i.e. in the, your villages. You said you would come to the bay and do so-and-so. Now you leave all this work to women. Go to the parade and see what the volunteers do to the men there. Sounds a bit familiar, perhaps. <laughs> women were instructing men to do their manly duty, to act as men and fight the militia who had attacked the rebels at Morant Bay. <clears throat> women also helped to determine the fate of Charles Price, a prominent black builder who was caught by the crowd after the burning of, after the burning of the courthouse. Here's Charles Price. You'll see below it, murdered. There was a debate about what to do with him, largely because of his color. The women made, the, made their point of view very clear. Quote, we worked for him on the road, and he not pay us. And we burned bricks for the church at Moran Bay, and he not pay us. You need not keep him till before day. Price was then beaten to death, despite offering 200 pounds for his life, a very large sum in 1865. These women were reacting to the problem that plagued free people in the aftermath of emancipation, low and irregular pay. While many women were clearly prominent in the rebellion, others behaved very differently. Some women actively aided some of the injured men at Morant Bay. James Moore Ross was a volunteer who, although wounded, tried to escape to the wharf. A woman was helping him when Bogle appeared and threatened to kill Ross. Women shouted to Bogle, don't kill him, he's nearly dead already. <laughs> Ross managed to get to the wharf and onto a boat and to safety. This was not an isolated incident. For instance, another volunteer, W.W. McGowan, had been badly hurt and, and left for dead. The crowd had removed his boots, his shirt, and his money. He remained on the, he remained on the ground until the next morning when a member of the mob came across him, realized he was not dead, and threatened to behead him. A woman whom McGowan did not know offered him a glass of water, but the man threatening the volunteer knocked it out of her hand. She then offered four shillings for McGowan and another wounded volunteer, saying McGowan was her brother. In the aftermath of the rebellion and in the face of personal danger, some black women sought to protect whites. At Surge Island Estate in St. Thomas in the East, a headwoman of one of the gangs, Jane Messam, was able to protect the manager named William Miller. As a group of about 25 people approached the estate, armed with cutlasses, sticks, and a gun, Messam hid Miller in a garret. Although the crowd had come to take Miller's life, she convinced him to return later to deal with Miller. The crowd turned back, allowing Miller to escape to Kingston. Elsewhere in the parish, another headwoman, Diana Blackwood, was able to protect the white women and children on Hordley Estate. On Hordley Estate, Blackwood hid them in a cane field when the estate came under attack, and then took the women and children to her own house the following day. This put Blackwood herself in danger when the crowd realized what she had done. In both of these cases, it was headwomen who helped save the lives of whites. 
Class allegiances may therefore help to explain the role of elite blacks in protecting white managers and their families. But this alone did not account for the actions of many women who responded in a similar way during the rebellion. <clears throat> in the end, women paid a high price for their involvement in the rebellion. Seven women were hanged, including Letitia Gehegan, the woman who threw the first stone at Moran Bay. As in Antigua in 1858, women were demonized for their role in the rebellion. This suggests a deep-seated fear of their potential political influence. But women suffered in other ways as well as a result of the rebellion. Jenny Jemmett has documented the extreme trauma suffered by women who lost sons, husbands, and fathers. Women not only suffered the emotional difficulties of losing kin, but also the severe economic consequences of life without the main provider in the family. Since over a thousand homes were destroyed, many women lost their homes and often all of their material possessions. In light of the severity of the oppression in the wake of the rebellion, it's not surprising that some women were also raped. Jemmett rightly suggests <clears throat> that rape would have been used as a punitive measure in the suppression of the rebellion. So ultimately, and uh, finally, and in conclusion, patriarchy remained dominant. Unlike women, some men could, could participate in politics and could enjoy the fruits of citizenship. This meant not only voting and serving on juries, but also petitioning the authorities, as in the case of Bogle and the other rebel leaders. Women were denied these rights in the post-emancipation Caribbean. Yet in their own way, and as Swithin Wilmot has suggested, free women, quote, played an important part in the politics of the black community, thereby maintaining the tradition they had established in slave society as persistent rebels. Thank you. <laughs>